Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. สวัสดีครับ. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha, going through each chapter by chapter of this book series, which is titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume three of this 13-book book series, and today we're exploring chapters 101 through 110. What we typically do is we start with a meditation just to prepare the mind. We'll do that today, a brief little meditation just to help the mind to clear out any clutter that may be there for you and allow you to then focus on the class and be able to retain the teachings. Then we'll go into the learning part where someone can volunteer in Zoom to be able to read the individual chapters. I will share some teachings on that chapter and then we'll open up to any and all questions that you might have. You can ask questions through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom by putting your questions into the comment section. And either I'll see that or if there's someone who's moderating, they'll be able to see those questions and be sure they get asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise a hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So welcome. I would like to invite you all to join for meditation, whether you're joining for the first time or you've been joining regularly. You can join into the class for meditation and or the learning afterwards. So just go ahead and make yourself comfortable. We'll start with some chants to just kind of ease into meditation, and then I'll give some brief guidance, and we'll come out with some chants as well. ตังมหาเกวนังอภิวาเตยามิสวัสดีสุปฏิปันโนมหาเกวโตสาวกัสสังโฆสังฆนามามีนับมวยรัสสาภะคะวะโตอาราโตสมมาสัพพุทัสสานับมวยรัสสาภะคะวะโตอาราโตสมมาสัพพุทัสสานับมวยรัสสาภะคะวะโตอาราโตสมมาสัพพุทัสสาน
Sumasaputasa Napmurasa Pakawato Arato Sumasaputasa Itipiso Makawa Arahang Samasamoto Wechacharanang Samuno Sakato Rokawito Anu Pero Purisa Dama Sati Satatawa Manu Sanang Puto Pakawati With the lower body and hands and arms comfortable, in the upper body erect, start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Here you're just establishing the breath. Breathing in and out. You're not interested in having a forced breath or a controlled breath. Just a nice, gradual, steady, consistent breath. A natural breath. Experiencing the full inhale. And whenever you're ready, a nice, gradual exhale. Breathing in. And out. With the breath well established, start fixating the mind on the breath. Either the sound of the breath coming into the nose or the sensation of air moving over the skin into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Then, whenever you notice that the mind moves off the breath, Cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. No need to observe the thought, label it, judge it, analyze it, or even try to figure out where it's coming from. Just wherever you notice that the mind is moved off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. in out I'm going to be quiet now and let you do this work of focusing on the breath cutting off and letting go anytime the mind moves off the breath breathing in in out
transition over to the learning part of our class where we'll be reading a chapter of the book series starting with chapter 101 these are very short chapters sometimes just a paragraph or two here this one is essentially one page and a person can volunteer to read if you're in zoom or if there's no one who's volunteering to read then I'll just go ahead and read the chapters it's great if students choose to read but sometimes they can't always choose to read so i'll open up to anybody who would like to read and then after the reading then i'll share some teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have in any of the platforms facebook youtube or zoom you can put that into the comment section or in zoom you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly all right, I'm not seeing anyone in Zoom who is volunteering to read, so I'll just go ahead and start reading, and then if anyone in Zoom would like to read, you're welcome to volunteer at any time. 
This first chapter of volume three, chapter 101, is titled, Discontentedness is Dependently Arisen. Good, good, Ananda. Anyone answering rightly would answer just as Saraputta has done. I have said, Ananda, that discontentedness is dependently arisen. Dependent on what? Dependent on contact. If one were to speak thus, one would be stating what has been said by me and would not represent me with what is contrary to the truth. One would explain in accordance with the teachings and no reasonable consequence of one's assertion would give ground for criticism. Therein, Ananda, in the case of those aesthetics and Brahmins, advocates of Gama, who maintain that discontentedness is created by oneself, that is conditioned by contact. Also, in the case of those aesthetics and Brahmins, advocates of Gama, who maintain that discontentedness is created by another, that too is conditioned by contact. Also, in the case of those aesthetics and Brahmins, advocates of Gama, who maintain that discontentedness is created both by oneself and by another, that too is conditioned by contact. Also, in the case of those aesthetics and Brahmins, advocates of Gama, who maintain that discontentedness has arisen randomly, being created neither by oneself nor by another, that too is conditioned by contact. So here we have a discourse that is being recounted by Ananda, who was one of the Buddha's closest students. He was either a brother-in-law or a cousin. He was with the Buddha essentially the full 45 years of him teaching from the age of 35 until 80 when the Buddha actually died. And he's accredited for capturing the teachings because he had a really deep, profound memory that was able to help the community of practitioners to write them down after the death of the Buddha. And the Buddha designates Sariputta as one of his close students as well. In his teachings, he recognizes him as one of his close students. So here, Ananda is recounting and teaching that the Buddha shared with him about discontentedness and how it arises. Well, we understand that discontentedness, those conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant are caused by craving desire attachment. We learn this through the Four Noble Truths, through dependent origination, and through other teachings that the Buddha shares as well, that it's that mental longing and strong eagerness, the mind chasing after the objects of its affection, that if it gets what it wants, it gets conditioned pleasant feelings like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria. If it doesn't get the objects of its affection, it experiences painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, feelings like this. And the craving, desire, attachment is what's causing these discontent feelings. The mind is causing it itself. In the unenlightened state, we typically will blame other people for the discontentedness that is arising. But in reality, the mind is causing it itself due to craving, desire, attachment. Well, in order for discontentedness to occur, that mental longing and strong eagerness needs to be in there. And now the mind is longing and yearning through the six sense bases. The six sense bases are the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body, and the mind. The mind is longing and yearning through these sense bases, wanting agreeable contact. If it gets what it agrees with due to its cravings, desires, attachments, then it gets those conditioned pleasant feelings. 
if it experiences disagreeable contact, then it will experience those painful feelings. But when the mind doesn't have craving, desire, attachment, it's just contact. It's not agreeable or disagreeable. It's just contact. So as long as the mind has craving, desire, attachment, and there's contact through the six sense bases, either agreeable or disagreeable, and that's the way the mind's viewing it, then it will experience those conditioned pleasant feelings and conditioned painful feelings. But when you uproot and eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, it's just contact. There's no agreeable or disagreeable because there's nothing that the mind is longing and yearning for wanting the objects of its affection. So for example, in the unenlightened mind, if there's craving through the eyes to see certain agreeable forms, when the eyes come in contact with agreeable forms, it gets conditioned pleasant feelings. But when it experiences contact through the eyes of disagreeable forms, then the mind experiences painful feelings. This is why the Buddha here is describing that discontentedness is dependent on contact. He's describing contact through the six sense bases. Let me give you an example. Now we'll use the ears. If you hear your neighbor playing music and it's agreeable to you, meaning you have a certain craving for certain types of music, you have a certain longing, a certain attachment to certain types of music. When you hear them play that music, your mind will maybe get these pleasant feelings because you have a longing and yearning, a craving for this. Your mind is clinging for it, right? Your mind's going to get those pleasant feelings. But now let's say your other neighbor a few hours later plays this music that you find to be horrible or disagreeable. And now when you hear that, because of the contact with this disagreeable sound, your mind experiences painful feelings like anger, frustration, or irritation, or others. This is because of the contact through the six sense bases. And that's what the Buddha is helping you to understand here. And he's here focusing on dependent on contact, but with understanding of all these other teachings that I just shared with you, then you can understand what's really happening in the unenlightened mind is because of central desire, which is one of the fetters. The mind has this pollution or this taint or this defilement. The mind is longing and yearning through the mind, through these sense bases, wanting agreeable contact. And this is due to the central desire. And as long as the mind's doing this, when it receives contact through these sense bases and it views it as agreeable or disagreeable, then you're going to experience discontentedness. But what you would like to get to is where you've eliminated craving, desire, attachment through things like breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and generosity. And now there is no craving, desire, attachment. And there isn't going to be any discontentedness. No matter what contact is coming in through the senses, the mind will no longer see it as agreeable or disagreeable. It's just contact. And now the mind can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no matter what the mind is experiencing. Let me know what questions you guys have on this by putting it into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. And in Zoom, you can also electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Okay, I'm not noticing any questions anywhere on any of our platforms. So we'll go ahead and move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 102. This chapter is titled, With the Destruction of Craving Comes the Destruction of Unwholesome Gamma. Monks, develop the path in the way that leads to the destruction of craving. And what is the path in the way that leads to the destruction of craving? It is the seven factors of enlightenment. 
What seven? The enlightenment factor of mindfulness, the enlightenment factor of investigation, the enlightenment factor of energy, the enlightenment factor of joy, the enlightenment factor of tranquility, the enlightenment factor of concentration, and the enlightenment factor of equanimity. When this was said, the Venerable Udaya asked the perfectly enlightened one, Venerable Sir, how are the seven factors of enlightenment developed and cultivated so that they lead to the destruction of craving? Here, Udaya, a monk develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings and elimination, maturing and release, which is immense, superb, measureless, without ill will. When he develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings and elimination, maturing and release, which is immense, superb, measureless, without ill will, craving is abandoned. With the abandoning of craving, unwholesome gamma is abandoned. With the abandoning of unwholesome gamma, discontentedness is abandoned. All of the seven factors of enlightenment are explained in the same way to include the enlightenment factor of investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration, with the final factor being described in the same way as in the below. He develops the enlightenment factor of equanimity, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings and elimination, maturing and release, which is immense, superb, measureless, without ill will. When he develops the enlightenment factor of equanimity, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings and elimination, maturing and release, which is immense, superb, measureless, without ill will, craving is abandoned. With the abandoning of craving, unwholesome gamma is abandoned. With the abandoning of unwholesome gamma, discontentedness is abandoned. This, Udaya, with the destruction of craving comes the destruction of unwholesome gamma. With the destruction of unwholesome gamma comes the destruction of discontentedness. Okay, so let me help you understand this. The core central teaching that the Buddha shares that is the path to enlightenment and leads to the elimination of discontent feelings is the Eightfold Path. That's the core central teaching with other teachings plugging into it. And an individual would need to learn the Eightfold Path inside and out, backwards and forwards, using the words of the Buddha so that you understand each individual factor. And by you dialing those in closer and closer in your life practice, your mind will move gradually, slowly but surely. It will move to this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful and joyful permanently. But you would need to understand those teachings in detail and practice them readily to be able to gradually train the mind to move to this enlightened mental state. As you're training the mind on the Eightfold Path, which the Eightfold Path is also referred to as the middle way, because with craving, desire, attachment, where the mind is longing and yearning and chasing after the objects of its affection, it's not in the middle. Because there, if you get what you want, you get pleasant feelings. If you don't get what you want, the mind gets painful feelings. The mind's not in the middle. But also over here, where the mind is complacent and lethargic and dull, the mind's not in the middle there either. So the Eightfold Path is dialing the mind in to be in the middle. So now you can pursue things as a goal, objective, or interest rather than chasing or being completely dull and lethargic. So the Eightfold Path is helping you to get to that middle way. 
Well, the seven factors of enlightenment are fine-tuning the mind. Oftentimes, people think that the seven factors of enlightenment are to determine if you are enlightened or you aren't enlightened. That's not what they are. They're actually to fine-tune the mind and bring the mind closer and closer to the middle. The Buddha teaches as part of the seven factors of enlightenment that mindfulness is essentially the awareness of mind and understanding the four foundations of mindfulness and having awareness of those four foundations. That's the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind, and the mental objects. Having awareness of these four foundations, which is also part of the Eightfold Path, is utterly important. You would need to know the four foundations of mindfulness in order to get the mind to enlightenment because it teaches you that prior to the mind experiencing things like anger and frustration and all discontent feelings, there's these bodily sensations. And these bodily sensations are starting to be experienced in the body as an indicator to you that the mind is about to experience a conditioned feeling of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant. And if you can cut off the discontentedness as a bodily sensation, that would be ideal. Then you save the mind having to experience that conditioned pleasant feeling. If you do that more and more readily throughout your life, and you're training to be able to do that in meditation, using breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity, now by being aware of those bodily sensations and cutting them off and letting them go, you're restraining the mind in daily life. And more and more, you will eliminate the cravings, desires, attachments that are producing discontentedness. But because your mind is not fully trained, you will experience feelings. That's the next step of the four foundations of mindfulness. But you can cut it off and let it go there too. Or if you don't cut it off there, it's gonna affect the condition of the mind for a few hours or a few days or a week or so. If you've ever been angry for like a week or two or agitated for a week or two, this is a conditioned feeling that first arose as a bodily sensation. It then became a feeling in the mind. You didn't know about these things. You didn't cut it off and let it go. And now it affected the condition of the mind. And if you don't cut it off there, it's gonna feed these mental objects, which are deeply rooted in the mind, containers that are keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. And what you're trying to do is purify the mind of these mental objects to be able to experience enlightenment. So by catching the bodily sensations and cutting it off and letting it go there, you're going to save yourself a whole lot of difficulties of ever needing to experience all these other things and feeding this mental object. So the Buddha talks about mindfulness as always being useful and that you should always practice mindfulness. And then he teaches about if you have a sluggish mind, meaning dull or lethargic, the way to bring it to the middle is to practice the enlightenment factor of investigation, energy, and joy. And then if you have an overactive or excited mind, he talks about practicing tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These are all described in volume one, chapter three. In there, you can see these individual factors of enlightenment, and I describe them for you, what they are, so that then you can apply right effort to apply them. But you would need to have right mindfulness to be able to apply these in practice. If you didn't have right mindfulness to be aware of the mind, you wouldn't know if it was sluggish or if it was excited to be able to then invoke the enlightenment factor of investigation, energy, and joy, or invoke the enlightenment factor of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Here, the Buddha is talking about the cultivation of these, and he's saying that each factor is based upon seclusion. 
during the lifetime of the Buddha, in order to train his mind, he went off into the forest and he spent a significant amount of time there being alone in order to cultivate his mind and train his mind. Nowadays, you would probably find it very challenging to go off into the forest and live there on your own for multiple years. So what you would need to do is you would need to spend some time alone. If you were always filling up your day with spending time with other people and you weren't willing to spend your time alone, you wouldn't be able to investigate the mind. You wouldn't be able to observe the mind. You wouldn't be able to know what are the wholesome qualities that are there that you would like to support, encourage, and don't allow them to fade. And what are the unwholesome qualities in your mind that you would like to cut off and eliminate and get out of the mind? So spending time alone, not that you need to go off and spend four years or six years alone like the Buddha did, but instead, just be sure you're sometimes going to the mall alone. You're going to dinner alone. You're taking yourself to the movies alone. You're doing things alone occasionally. Maybe you go for a walk in the park alone. This is really helpful for you to sit with your own thoughts and observe what are the wholesome qualities and what are the unwholesome qualities. And what that leads to is it leads to freedom from strong feelings and elimination of discontentedness. Because now when you see the wholesome qualities and unwholesome qualities in the mind, you can apply right effort to either support the wholesome qualities or eliminate the unwholesome qualities. And the Buddha describes this as maturing and release. What this is, is your mind, as you're gradually training the mind, these cravings don't just get eliminated the first time you see them and you try to cut them off and let them go. You're not going to be able to just eliminate a craving that easily, particularly as you're first getting going in your training, because your mind isn't yet fully developed to be able to do that. So the mind matures in release, meaning you gradually wear away the cravings, desires, attachments in these other aspects of the mind that you need to work through. And as you're maturing and maturing, you're gradually working to let these go. Eventually it releases. If you've ever had an experience where you've maybe been in a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend, and when you guys split up, your mind was angry or sad or lonely or frustrated, and it was like that maybe for several days or several weeks or even a month or two, but slowly but surely you wore away at this craving and this attachment to the person, and you might have gotten to a point where your mind just finally decided, okay, I'm going to let it go. And when you decided to let it go, you might have felt the stress and tension in your neck and your shoulders. Or you might have felt the tightening in your chest just completely release in the moment that you, your mind finally let it go. And it might not have been a relationship. It might have been some argument with a friend or family member or something else that the mind was clinging to and holding on to. And as you gradually train the mind or you gradually decided in the mind to let go of this thing, it matured and released. And you can actually observe this in the mind that some of these cravings, some of these fetters, some of the things that you're working to eliminate can mature and mature and mature and mature and mature. And you eventually get to the point where it releases from the mind and you can almost feel it. You can feel this tension coming out of the body and out of the mind. And you can oftentimes feel the peace and the joy come into the mind. It can be a sudden thing. So this is what the Buddha is describing here. And then he's describing that that experience is immense, superb, and measureless. Because of that peace and joy that comes into the mind, when you've worked on a craving and it matures and release, it's immense, superb, and measureless. You can't measure the peace and the joy that you experience through eliminating those cravings. And having done so, when you eliminate cravings, there isn't going to be ill will. That 
it's craving that leads to the anger, hatred, ill will, and those lesser versions. So by the time your mind develops the ability to let go of cravings, eventually you won't have ill will. You won't have any anger, hatred, ill will, frustration, irritation, even the slightest agitation or dislike is eliminated from the mind. And that's through cultivating these seven factors of enlightenment along with the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is that core central teaching. And that's what the Buddha is explaining here, that with the abandoning of craving, there's abandoning of unwholesome gamma. Unwholesome gamma is formed through craving, anger, and ignorance. This is the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. Craving is a mental longing with a strong eagerness. The mind chasing after the objects of its affection. The mind becomes very selfish. It has selfish desires. And whenever you make decisions through craving, through these selfish desires, it's going to produce unwholesome gamma. What gamma is, is cause and effect or action and results, the results of your decisions. It's not mystical or magical. It's the results of your decisions. So if you're making decisions through your own selfish desires, it's going to produce unwholesome results or unwholesome gamma. Then as you're making decisions through craving, you're also potentially going to be making decisions through anger. And as you make decisions through this anger or the lesser versions like irritation or annoyance or frustration, it's also going to produce unwholesome results or unwholesome gamma. And where all that is coming from is the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. When you're making decisions through ignorance or unknowing of true reality, misunderstandings and confusions, this is also going to lead to unwholesome results or unwholesome gamma. And it's because of the ignorance that the mind is having craving and anger. So we describe it as craving, anger, and ignorance, but it's really the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality that the unenlightened mind just doesn't understand craving and anger. So therefore, craving and anger continues to persist in the mind. When you understand with wisdom that you need to train the mind and how to train the mind, then you can eliminate craving and anger. This is why when a student first starts studying with me, I teach them not to believe anything that I teach, that instead you learn, you reflect to independently verify, and then you practice. This is what leads to wisdom. And when you can get to wisdom, this is what's ultimately going to allow you to then eliminate craving and anger. And by eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance, you've eliminated the causes and conditions that are producing unwholesome results or unwholesome gamma. And you arise in the mind the wholesome roots, which are the exact opposites of craving, anger, and ignorance. The opposite of craving, where you have selfish desires, is to practice generosity, where you're giving and sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources. The opposite of anger is loving kindness, where you have a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And you cultivate that in meditation and then practice it through your intentions, your speech, and your actions. And the opposite of this ignorance or unknowing of true reality is wisdom. And that's why you don't believe the teachings of the Buddha. You learn, reflect, and practice so that you can get to wisdom and see the truth for yourself. And by cultivating the mind and developing each of these seven factors of enlightenment, you now have a tool to now be able to fine-tune the mind. Because when you're practicing the Eightfold Path, if you think about getting to enlightenment in the analogy of a sculpture, and you have a big piece of raw wood, 
When you're learning the Eightfold Path, it's like taking a hatchet or an axe and chopping off big chunks of wood. You're chopping off wrong view and wrong intention and wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, and wrong concentration. You're getting these big chunks of wood out of the sculpture so that you can refine it more and more with this axe. And that's what the Eightfold Path is doing for you. But then as you make this sculpture and you're trying to put in the eyelashes and the creases in the skin, you're gonna come in with like a razor blade to be able to mark the individual lines of the eyelashes or the, the wrinkles in the skin. And that's what the seven factors of enlightenment are doing. So the Eightfold Path is chucking off big chunks of wood in your life practice to get rid of those big unwholesome things. But then it's the seven factors of enlightenment where you're fine tuning the mind and bringing it more and more to the middle. And as your mind gets used to being in this middle for longer and longer periods of time, it won't pop out. But as you're getting going, you don't have this groove built into your life practice yet. Your mind isn't in the groove, so it's easy to pop out. But when you get deeper and deeper into this groove, meaning you've been practicing for one year, two years, three years, four years, you've got this real groove where the mind's used to being in the middle. And when it pops out, you'll know that it popped out because you'll know what it feels like for the mind to be in the middle, having fine tuned it this much. And then the more and more that you spend with the mind in the middle, it won't pop out. And that's what the enlightened mental state is, is that it's always in the middle. By the time you get to enlightenment, you're practicing these teachings effortlessly. You won't need to be conscious about practicing them all the time and struggling and having difficulties to practice them because the mind will be fully transformed. You will no longer have the pollutions in mind that are hindering it from experiencing the enlightened mental state and having struggles and difficulties. You would have uprooted all of those causes and conditions and all the pollutions. So now the mind is effortlessly practicing all the teachings and you've been doing that for multiple years to be able to build the mind up to the point where it can do that effortlessly. So let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom and I'll be able to see your questions there. All right, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. Max, I saw you had your hand up at one point, but I imagine your question must have got answered as I was teaching. Yes, sir. I, I just had a question about how easily, uh, like early on, you uh, were uh, talking about just cutting off the cravings and letting it go. And I just had a question on <clears throat> how easily that is supposed to be. I mean, I, you know, uh, at times have cravings or whatnot. And it's, you know, <clears throat> sometimes it's more difficult to just uh you know it sounds so simple to just cut it off and let it go but it's you know some may be more difficult than others depending on the craving and the you know my practice basically um you know with more practice comes an easier ability to um cut off cut cut off the cravings and let them go is that correct that's 100 percent accurate max that each time you're meditating, you're accumulating the benefits and training the mind more and more to be able to cut it off and let it go. And in daily life where you're observing that there's these cravings arising and you're redirecting the mind to something else that's helping as well. And the generosity 
that when you're practicing generosity with your time, effort, energy, and resource, that's training the mind to let go. And you just need to accumulate enough of the benefits of that over a consistent long-term period where it becomes easier and easier. But there's still those deeply rooted cravings. Even when you're in that like second and third stage of enlightenment and you're really close, you're on the cusp of enlightenment, whatever attachments are still around towards the end of your journey by the time you get to enlightenment, those are the ones that are the most deeply rooted in the mind because they've been around for the longest. So they're oftentimes the most hardest and most challenging to get rid of. So by that point, you will have built up your mind and accumulate a lot of benefits and you will know what you need to do in order to get to enlightenment. But in some cases, the mind just really struggles with being able to do it. So even though we say cut it off and let it go, some of these cravings, I mean, you need to gradually wear them away over multiple months and years. It's not just like, oh, there's a craving, cut it off and it's done, it's gone. It's no, you've got to constantly cut it off and 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 cut it off some more and cut it off some more. And then over multiple years, those deeply rooted cravings will eventually mature and release from the mind. The easier things, you know, some of those real easy ones, you know, you can just get rid of those really easy, like early in practice. But as you get going with this, they're more deeply rooted. So you'll accumulate benefits through the meditation, through generosity, through redirecting the mind in daily life, and it'll get easier at different times, but there'll still be some deeply rooted cravings, even all the way until the second or third stage of enlightenment, which will be more challenging. And they'll tend to be more challenging because they're more deeply rooted and they're stronger. They've been around for longer periods of time. But by that point, you will have trained the mind so well and have so much wisdom. You will know what you're doing. It's just a matter of time continuing to accumulate the benefits. So this is why like if you can meditate two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more, this is ideal. This is what will produce the best and most significant results. But even if you can get five minutes here and there, you know, you're at a bus stop, you're waiting for your children at a park or something, or maybe you're waiting for them with a, another parent or another friend somewhere else. Hey, if you can get five, 10 minutes in here and there, you know, go for it because all of that's accumulating to your benefit. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Yes, you're welcome. All right. So let's go ahead and move to the next chapter, which is chapter 103. This is a very short chapter. So I'll go ahead and read. Oh, there we go. Max would like to read this one. Go ahead, Max. Okay. The destruction of excitement. Seeing rightly, he experiences the fading away of strong feelings. With, this, with the destruction of excitement comes the destruction of craving. With the destruction of craving comes destruction of excitement. With the destruction of excitement and craving, the mind is said to be well liberated. All right. Thank you, Max. So here, what the Buddha is talking about when he says seeing rightly, he's talking about someone who's cultivated wisdom. Because when you've cultivated wisdom in this path, you can see rightly. You can see clearly. You can see with clarity. But when we're in the unenlightened state and we have pollution of mind, we lack wisdom, then we can't see clearly. We can't have vision. The Buddha talks about this in other teachings where someone who has cultivated wisdom about what's leading to these discontent feelings, for example, and all the other natural laws of existence, you can have this clear vision. You can see rightly. You have deep wisdom. So seeing rightly or having cultivated wisdom, he experiences the fading away of strong feelings. 
what you're cultivating wisdom about is craving and anger so that now you can eliminate craving and anger and eliminating craving and anger you will experience the fading away of strong feelings by cultivating wisdom of the 10 fetters you will learn what those 10 fetters are and how to eliminate them uproot the pollutions out of the mind and you will experience the fading away of strong feelings so seeing rightly you will experience the fading away of strong feelings and you gain this wisdom by coming to classes like this by reading the books that i share that are based on the words of the buddha by reflecting on those by reaching out for personal guidance from a teacher if you're coming to the temple or coming to retreats that i teach that's another way to gain the wisdom to be able to see rightly but you're not believing the teachings you're learning reflecting to independently verify and you're practicing so now with this wisdom you learn about the destruction of excitement becomes the destruction of craving remember what we're talking about here is those conditioned pleasant feelings you're in the enlightened state you're going to be experiencing so much fulfillment and so much joy you're going to have unconditioned joy or unconditioned happiness in the unenlightened state you're only experiencing conditioned feelings meaning if this condition is met and 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 this condition is met i'll be happy or i'll be excited this is conditional feelings which are ultimately unsatisfying because they're temporary if you base your inner feelings on some condition then when that condition changes due to impermanence your feelings are going to change so if you see the sun is outside and you get really excited based on the condition of the sun now when it starts raining you're going to get sad or angry or frustrated or irritated because you base your inner feelings of excitement on the condition of the sun or if you get a brand new job and you get so excited or a brand new boyfriend or a brand new girlfriend you get so excited well that's a condition and as soon as your relationship breaks up or as soon as you lose your job that condition has changed because of impermanence and now you're going to experience painful feelings you're essentially setting yourself up to fail so an enlightened mind is beyond this pleasure and pain these conditioned feelings are up and down and up and down and up and down that's what the unenlightened mind is doing but the enlightened mind is beyond that that instead of having this condition this condition this condition this condition has to be met in order for me to be happy which is what the unenlightened mind is going to do the enlightened mind is has eliminated all of that the enlightened mind is going to be joyful or happy with no conditions whatsoever it can just reside peaceful and joyful regardless of what's going on in the world the enlightened mind knows that there's difficulties and challenges in the world that people are experiencing but they don't base their inner feelings on what's going on in the world they've liberated the mind from that and the way that you do that is you get ahead of the curve and you understand these conditioned pleasant feelings like what the buddha is describing here is the destruction of excitement comes the destruction of craving so if you have mindfulness and you're aware of the mind in daily life and you can observe that there's a conditioned pleasant feeling that is about to occur because you'll notice bodily sensations that are occurring prior to the mind experiencing pleasant feelings and you can cut those off and let them go gaining control and discipline of the mind you're restraining the mind you're not allowing it to have craving you're not allowing it to have conditioned pleasant feelings so you're essentially rewiring the mind as long as you keep allowing the mind to have conditioned pleasant feelings then on the other side of that is the condition painful feelings and sometimes that time is so far apart you don't associate it 
with the conditioned pleasant feelings. So if you got a job and you got all these conditioned pleasant feelings like excitement, and then five years later you lose your job and you're angry and frustrated, you're not gonna necessarily associate those painful feelings five years later to the fact that your mind had conditioned feelings that you got excited when you got the job. So you need to be able to observe that and understand the truth in that and seeing rightly that it's these conditioned pleasant feelings that the mind is being allowed to base its inner feelings on some condition that now you're going to experience these conditioned painful feelings. And the mind keeps chasing in the unenlightened state. It keeps chasing these pleasant feelings, thinking that that's what's going to lead to some kind of lasting satisfaction. So you might chase a new pair of shoes or a new job or a new partner or some other thing. And when you get the objects of your affection, you get conditioned pleasant feelings. But because you based your inner feelings on some condition, that condition is impermanent. So therefore, you're going to ultimately end up in painful feelings. And we don't like those painful feelings in the human state. So that's why the untrained mind will just keep chasing its cravings and desires, thinking that if it can just get those cravings and desires fulfilled, that it will get those pleasant feelings. But this is where it just keeps being stuck in this constant cycle over and over and over again. So when you understand the restraining of the mind from these conditioned pleasant feelings, then you can destroy the cravings. And having destroyed the cravings comes the destruction of these discontent feelings, these conditional pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. Now keep in mind, any kind of enjoyment that you experience in the enlightened state is far beyond anything you will ever experience in the unenlightened state. So don't think that an enlightened being is bored or lonely or feeling some kind of, you know, feelings like that or somehow like a robot. Instead, they're just not experiencing the conditioned feelings. Their mind is always uplifted. They're always in a good mood. The mind is always experiencing this peace and this joy all the time. They're enjoying life way more than they ever did in the unenlightened state. So when you see here the Buddha describing the destruction of craving leads to the destruction of excitement, don't think that you're going to somehow be bored or lonely or anything like that, or you're going to be mute or somehow like a robot or something like that by the time you get to enlightenment. It's just that you're not experiencing conditional excitement, that you'll be able to enjoy anything. If you sit down and have dinner with a certain person or a certain group of people, you will enjoy it thoroughly. But also if you sit down by yourself alone and have dinner as well, you can enjoy that thoroughly too. That the mind doesn't have conditions that it has to be sunny outside in order for me to be excited. Or I have to have a certain balance in my bank account in order for me to be excited. That's what the unenlightened mind's doing. The enlightened mind, no matter what your bank account is, no matter who's around you, no matter what job you have, no matter what the weather is outside, no matter whether there's a war in the world or not, you can still maintain your peace and your joy regardless because you don't have these cravings. And that's what the Buddha is saying here is that with the destruction of excitement and craving, the mind is said to be well liberated. Liberation of mind is freedom from strong feelings. In the unenlightened state, people can shake up your mind. You can experience the cravings, desires, attachments in your mind that start getting triggered. And now your mind is experiencing frustration and anger and irritation and all these other discontent feelings because of these conditional experiences. If these conditions are met, you'll be happy. If these conditions aren't met, 
then I'm going to be angry or sad or frustrated. Your mind is like it's trapped. It's not liberated. It's not free. So by getting free of this craving, desire, attachment, which leads to conditioned, pleasant feelings. Now your mind can be well liberated because you're not allowing it to have these conditioned, pleasant feelings. So therefore it's not going to have conditioned, painful feelings. So it's beyond this pleasure and pain where it's just always peaceful and always joyful. You're always fulfilled. There's never a time where you feel like something's missing in your life. By the time you get to enlightenment, the mind is fully fulfilled, fully satisfied. It's permanently in this mental state of peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Are there any questions on this chapter? All right, I'm not seeing any questions on this chapter in any of our platforms. So we'll move on to the next chapter. This is chapter 104. This is titled, The Destruction of Craving is Nibbana, or Enlightenment. Venerable Sir, it is said, a being, a being. In what way, venerable sir, is one called a being? One is stuck, Radha. I think that's how you pronounce the name. We'll just say student. One is stuck, student, tightly stuck in desire, longing, excitement, in craving for form. Therefore, one is called a being. One is stuck, tightly stuck in desire, longing, excitement, in craving for feelings. Therefore, one is called a being. One is stuck, tightly stuck, in desire, longing, excitement, in craving for perceptions. Therefore, one is called a being. One is stuck, tightly stuck, in desire, longing, excitement, in craving for volitional formations, choices, decisions. Therefore, one is called a being. One is stuck, tightly stuck in desire, longing, excitement, craving for consciousness. Therefore, one is called a being. Suppose, student, some little boys or girls are playing with sandcastles. So long as they are not free from desire, longing, excitement, thirst, passion, and craving for those sandcastles, they cherish them, play with them, treasure them, and treat them possessively. But when those little boys or girls lose their desire, longing, excitement, thirst, passion, and craving for those sandcastles. Then they scatter them with their hands and feet, demolish them, scatter them, and put them out of play. So too, student, scatter form, demolish it, scatter it, put it out of play. Practice for the destruction of craving. Scatter feeling, scatter perception, scatter volitional formations, choices, decisions. Scatter consciousness, demolish it, shatter it, put it out of play. Practice for the destruction of craving. For the destruction of craving, student, is Nibbana or enlightenment. Okay, many things to talk about here. First of all, the Buddha is explaining what a living being is here by describing the five aggregates. The five aggregates are form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, which are choices and decisions, and consciousness. This is how you determine a living being, which is very important for you in order to practice the first precept. If you look at the first precept, the Buddha talks about living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings, abandoning the taking of life and living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. But you need to know what a living being is, 
right? So look at this being who you are. This human being we know is a living being. The Buddha is describing that. There's physical form. Okay, you can see that. You're independently verifying this. There's feelings. So you know that you have certain feelings that come into the mind. There's perceptions. What perception is, is the way the mind looks out at the world, certain opinions and views about the world. That's what a perception is. Then there's volitional formations, which are choices and decisions. You understand that you make choices and decisions. You have volitional formations. And that's because of the consciousness. The consciousness is the mind. So these five things make sure we understand what a living being is. There's physical form, there's feelings, there's perceptions, there's volitional formations, and there's consciousness. So whatever electronic device that you're listening to this on right now or watching this on, it's not a living being because it doesn't have the five aggregates. It has physical form. It's got the first aggregate, but it doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have perceptions. It doesn't have volitional formations and it doesn't have consciousness. So because it doesn't have all five aggregates, it's not a living being. And now we can look at something like a tree and any other plant. Now, while we consider plants to be alive and we talk about them as being alive, they're not a living being because they don't have the five aggregates. They have physical form, but they don't have feelings. They don't have perceptions. They don't have volitional formations, which are choices and decisions. And that's because they don't have a consciousness of mind. So just take things like a perception. A tree doesn't look out at the world with a certain opinion and view about the world, or it doesn't have certain choices and decisions. It can't choose to pick itself up walk down the street and replant itself because it doesn't have volitional formations and that's because it doesn't have a consciousness or a mind so we can see that this is why we harvest wood we harvest plants in order to eat these things provide us resources that we need to sustain our life but while we might refer to them as alive because it's thoughtful to take care of plants and not degrade our environment it's important to understand that they're not a living being because they don't have the five aggregates. So the Buddha is describing that a living being is clinging. There's this desire, this longing, this excitement, this craving. This being is stuck because it's holding on to physical form, to feelings, to perceptions, to volitional formations and consciousness. And as long as you hold on to these five aggregates, you're going to be experiencing discontentedness. So let's take the first one. If you're clinging to this physical form of the body and you want this body to be permanent, when you see a wrinkle or you see a gray hair, oh my goodness, or you see some fat coming into the stomach or the hips or the thighs or the buttocks area, then if you're clinging, wanting the body to look permanently a certain way, you're going to be shaken up when it changes. And the same thing, if you cling to feelings, thinking that this is who you are as a person, you are not angry. The mind is angry, but you are not angry, right? It's just the mind is angry. So not clinging to these feelings, thinking that this is who you are or your views and opinions. If you cling, if you hold on to your views and opinions, your perceptions, you've been in situations where you might have argued with people and you've damaged relationships because you've clung to your opinions and views so tightly. And as long as you're clinging to your perceptions, your opinions and views, then you're stuck in this continuous cycle of rebirth because you're stuck experiencing this discontentedness. The same thing if you're clinging to volitional formations, which are choices and decisions. There, if you cling to a certain decision 
And now because things change due to impermanence, if you keep holding on to that decision, it's going to cause you discontentedness. So if you've made a certain decision and now things have changed, you should change your decision. Don't cling to your decision because that's just going to cause the mind continuous discontentedness. And the same thing with clinging to the consciousness or the mind, the self-identity in the mind. If you cling to these things, you're setting yourself up for discontentedness. And the Buddha is using this analogy or this simile to help you understand how little boys and girls, as we were little boys and girls, or as you see little boys and girls playing with sandcastles, as long as they're longing and they're having this desire and excitement, this thirst, this passion, this craving for those sandcastles, they're cherishing them, playing with them, and they treat them possessively. Well, when the water comes in and knocks over the sandcastle, oh, there's frustration, there's anger, there's disappointment, right? Because the mind is holding on to the sandcastles. But when those little boys and girls lose their desire, their longing, their excitement, their thirst, their passion, their craving for those sandcastles, and they scatter them with their hands and their feet, they demolish them and shatter them and put them out of play. Now, when the water comes in, there's no disappointment. There's no frustration or irritation when the water comes in on the beach and destroys the sandcastle because they've let it go. They're no longer clinging to it. So the Buddha is describing the same thing for you about the five aggregates that you should let them go. You should scatter them. So no longer clinging to form, thinking that this physical body is you. No longer clinging to your feelings, thinking that this is you. No longer clinging to your perceptions, your opinions and views. No longer clinging to your decisions, your choices and decisions, those volitional formations. And no longer clinging to the mind or the consciousness. Because as long as you cling to these things, your mind's going to be discontent. So scatter them, let them go. But at the same time, understand that there is this physical body that you need to take care of. So you might eat certain healthy foods, you might exercise potentially, you will clothe the body, you will have certain hygiene, brushing your teeth, combing your hair, washing the body, things like this, maybe getting medical checkups. It's wise to take care of this physical body. It's wise to take care of this mind by training it and meditating and things like this. But when you cling to it, wanting it to be permanent, that's what's going to cause the discontentedness. So bringing the mind to the middle is to acknowledge that, yes, these things are in existence. This physical form and mind is here. Let me take care of it, but let me not cling to it, thinking that this is who I am as a person. And that's what the Buddha is describing here and how you can get unstuck from this constant discontentedness, getting to enlightenment by eliminating craving, desire, attachment and escaping this cycle of rebirth. Let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions. So we'll move on to the next one, which is chapter 105. This is another short one. Not sure if Max, you would like to read this one, but if not, I'll go ahead and read it. All right, it's titled, Excitement is Discontentedness. As a consequence of this, excitement arises. Excitement in consciousness is clinging. With one's clinging as condition, existence comes to be. With existence as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this 
whole mass of discontentedness. So here, this is a little snippet of dependent origination. Dependent origination is something you're going to study in Volume 5, Chapter 14, but here it's a little snippet of it to help you start to understand it a bit. With the teachings of the Buddha, when you first start learning on the path to enlightenment, you typically learn the Four Noble Truths first. The Four Noble Truths is your window into dependent origination. The Buddha is helping you see that craving, desire, attachment is what's causing discontentedness in four simple statements. He's helping you understand that your own mind is causing these discontent feelings. But as you study more and more and you get into the words of the Buddha, you ultimately get to this highest law, this highest law of nature called dependent origination, where there's 12 interlinking steps that take you from condition to condition to condition, showing you why your mind experiences discontentedness and why you keep experiencing rebirth over and over. And this is a teaching that you can independently verify for yourself that the Buddha explains in long form exactly what's causing the discontentedness. Here, you're just getting a couple little snippets of that. So that's why it says, as a consequence of this, excitement arises. This is something that he was talking about previous to this. And now, with excitement in consciousness is clinging. So the mind holds on to the mind itself, wanting the mind to be a certain way and getting this excitement, the mind is clinging. When there's clinging, then existence comes to be. You become a being in one of the five realms of existence, hell, animal realm, afflicted spirits, the human realm, or the heavenly realm. Because of existence, there's birth. And then when there's birth, there's going to be aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. And this is how this whole massive amount of discontentedness comes to be. That because of craving and clinging, what craving is, is the mind is longing and yearning for something, chasing after the objects of your affection. What clinging is, is the mind's holding on to something. So in the beginning classes and foundational classes, I describe craving and clinging all as the same thing because it's easier for people to learn it that way when they're first getting started. But when you dive deeper into the teachings of the Buddha, you understand that it's two separate things. The craving is the longing and yearning for something, the chasing after the objects of your affection, the grasping for the objects of your affection, thinking the next new shiny object around the corner is going to provide some lasting satisfaction. Now, because of craving, the mind experiences these conditioned feelings like pleasant feelings. And now the mind clings. This is the holding on to a possession. So there's the longing and yearning for something, and then there's the clinging to it, wanting it to be permanent. These are two separate things. And this is what's causing the mind to be discontent. And it's also what's causing rebirth. And that's what the Buddha is explaining here in these small little snippet of teachings is that with clinging as condition, as long as the mind's clinging and holding on, there's going to be existence. And because of existence, there's going to be birth. And when there's birth, there's going to be aging and death. And there's going to be sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. And this is how the whole massive amount of discontentedness comes to be. And if you see all the other interlinking steps, the Buddha is explaining how this all comes to be, which we'll study in volume five, chapter 14. So the only reason why we die is because of birth. As long as we keep being born, we're going to continue to experience death. 
That's the whole reason why everyone in the world is dying. And the reason why their sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair is because of all these pollutions that are in the mind that are described in dependent origination in the other parts of the teachings of the Buddha. Because when there's a being that is born into the world, it's born into the world with craving and ignorance. And it's going to ultimately form anger, hatred, and ill will as it grows up in the world. So as long as there's birth, there's going to be aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. And because of this, the mind is continuously stuck in this cycle of this massive amount of discontentedness. But you can uproot this. You can eliminate this. When you see dependent origination, the very top line is called ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. And when you uproot ignorance, this uproots all the interlinking steps. This is why you're interested in getting to wisdom and you're never interested in believing anything about the teachings of the Buddha because with belief, you don't know what's true or false. But when you independently verify his teachings after having learned them, now you independently verify them and then you practice them. You're uprooting the ignorance because you're able to accumulate wisdom and now you're able to dismantle this 12 interlinking steps that leads to discontentedness. And you'll see this when we get to that volume in that chapter. I will share it with you in detail. Any questions on this particular chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions on this chapter, so let's move on to the next one, which is 106. Okay, so this one's titled, A Stream Enter is Worth More Than Being a Wheel-Turning Monarch. Monks, although a wheel-turning monarch, having exercised supreme sovereign rulership over the four continents, with the breakup of the body after death is reborn in a good destination, in a heavenly world, in the company of heavenly beings of the heavenly realm, and there in the Nandana grove, accompanied by an entourage of heavenly nymphs, he enjoys himself supplied and endowed with the five cords of heavenly sensual pleasure. Still, as he does not possess four things, he is not freed from hell, the animal realm, the realm of afflicted spirits, not freed from the plane of misery, the bad destinations, the nether world. Although monks, a noble disciple maintains himself by lumps of alms food and wears rag robes, still, as he possesses four things, he is freed from hell, the animal realm, the realm of afflicted spirits, freed from the plane of misery, the bad destinations, the nether world. What are the four? Here, monks, the noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha, thus, the Tathagata is an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true wisdom and conduct, fortunate knower of the worlds, unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of heavenly beings and humans, the enlightened one, the fortunate one. Two, he possesses confirmed confidence in the teachings, thus, the teachings are well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable, to be personally experienced by the wise. 3. He possesses confirmed confidence in the community thus. The community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples is practicing the wholesome way, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way, that is, the four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals, 
This community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respectful salutation, the unsurpassed field of merit for the world. 4. He possesses the virtues, moral conduct, dear to the noble ones, unbroken, untorn, unblemished, unblotched, liberating, praised by the wise, not misunderstood, in leading to concentration. He possesses these four things. And monks, between the obtaining of sovereignty over the four continents and the obtaining of the four things, the obtaining of sovereignty over the four continents is not worth a sixteenth part of obtaining of the four things. So here what the Buddha is describing is this wheel-turning monarch is not as beneficial in the world as a stream enterer. What a wheel-turning monarch is, this is a leader or a ruler during the lifetime of the Buddha. This would have been a king, queens, people like this that are ruling over a population of people who are sharing decisions over this population of people based on the teachings of the Buddha. And this individual would have a lot of influence in the world because they would be able to lead 50,000 people, 100,000 people, 500,000 people, however many people are in their kingdom, they would be able to guide those people and rule over them through the teachings of the Buddha. So they're very influential and they are born in this improved destination upon rebirth. The Buddha is talking about the heavenly world here. But he talks about the stream enter which is the first stage of enlightenment as an individual who is more beneficial than a wheel turning monarch. And the reason why is because a stream enterer is the first stage of enlightenment. There's four stages of enlightenment, stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, and arahant. He describes the first stage of enlightenment as a stream enterer because much like a log entering the stream will ultimately reach the ocean, a practitioner who enters the stream or that first stage of enlightenment will ultimately get to enlightenment itself as an arahant. It's just a matter of time. Either in this life or future lives, that individual who is a stream enterer will ultimately get to enlightenment, much like a log entering a stream will get to the ocean. Well, there's multiple criteria that are needed in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment. But once you do, this is really helpful for your mind and for the people around you because you significantly reduce the harm that you're causing in the world. And thus, you're significantly reducing the discontentedness in the mind. And having gotten into that first stage of enlightenment, the mind won't regress backwards from there. It will only progress forward. And Getting into the first stage of enlightenment, while there's multiple criteria to be able to get to that first stage of enlightenment, the Buddha is sharing four of those criteria here to help one understand what is important to cultivate in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment. But keep in mind, there's other criteria as well. The first one, he talks about this confirmed confidence in the Buddha, that you have confidence in him, that he's a Buddha and that he's enlightened and that his teachings lead to enlightenment. And you gain that through learning and practicing his teachings and seeing that they're impactful to your life and they're improving the condition of your mind. And as you do that, you will then develop more and more confidence that he was indeed a Buddha. Then you possess confidence in the teachings. Again, you accomplish that through investigating the teachings, seeing that they're working and they're impactful in your life, and you will gain this confidence in the teachings, knowing that without a doubt, they indeed lead to an improved condition of mind and ultimately are leading you closer and closer to enlightenment. 
And you also would need to develop confidence in the community. The community is the ordained practitioners and the household practitioners that if you develop confidence in this community, it's because you've interacted in this community and there's people that are encouraging you, supporting you, helping you along the path. And this is allowing the mind to develop this confidence because you see that this community of people are practicing the teachings very well in the wholesome way. And you have role models and you have examples and you have teachers and guides to be able to ask for help. And you start developing confidence in the community. And then the fourth criteria that he's sharing in this particular discourse is that one is practicing the moral conduct. What he's describing here is from the Eightfold Path, there's right speech, right action, and right livelihood. This is the moral conduct. If you can bring your practice up to that, which is the foundation of the moral conduct, then you'll be practicing these virtues that are dear to the noble ones. There's moral conduct that is deeper than what you're seeing in the Eightfold Path, but the Eightfold Path is giving you a certain layer of details that you can bring your practice up to that. And then over time, in order to get to enlightenment, you would need to deepen your practice deeper and deeper to understand more aspects of right speech, right action, right livelihood. But in the Eightfold Path, the Buddha is giving a certain layer of detail, a certain level of granularity that you can bring your practice up to that. And that will allow you to eliminate one of the fetters in the mind that's related to the moral conduct so that then you'll be practicing in a way that's not causing harm to others, or at least you've significantly reduced the harm that you're causing to others. And the Buddha is saying someone who's getting to this first stage of enlightenment is more beneficial than a wheel-turning monarch. So while a wheel-turning monarch can be influential to a large population of people, a wheel-turning monarch doesn't necessarily have these four criteria, confidence in the Buddha, confidence in the teachings, confidence in the community, and practicing virtuous conduct. But someone who is, meaning a stream enter, now those people being in the community, they can be helpful to other members of the community. They can be sharing teachings or just the way that they interact with other people. When you go to store, if you go to different places in your community, you will be interacting in a way that is really improved above and beyond what you were practicing when you were off the path to enlightenment. And this is very beneficial to a community. So that's why the Buddha is describing that a stream enter is more beneficial even than a wheel-turning monarch who is maybe guiding you know, many, many, many people, a large population of people through the teachings. They don't yet have these four criteria, but a stream enter does. So they're very valuable or very beneficial to a population of people because now they can help others to potentially get to that same condition of mind and beyond. Because once somebody gets to stream entry, they will ultimately get to enlightenment. So let me see what questions you guys have on this particular chapter, if any at all. I'm not seeing any questions here from anybody in any of our platforms. So I'm gonna move on to the next chapter. We're gonna to go to chapter 107. This one is titled, A Confident Stream Enter. Monks, the eye is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The ear is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The nose is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The tongue is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The body is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The mind is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. One who places confidence in these teachings and persist in them 
thus is called a confidence stream enter one who has entered the fixed course of rightness entered the plane of wholesome persons transcended the plane of the worldlings he is incapable of doing any deed by reason of which he might be reborn in hell in the animal realm in the realm of afflicted spirits he is incapable of passing away without having realized the fruit of stream entry okay i'm going to read the next chapter as well because these two chapters are connected and i can explain them both at the same time chapter 108 is titled a teachings stream entry one for whom these teachings are understood thus after being pondered to a sufficient degree with wisdom is called a teachings stream entry one who has entered the fixed course of rightness entered the plane of wholesome persons transcended the plane of worldlings he is incapable of, of doing any deed by reason of which he might be reborn in hell in the animal realm in the realm of afflicted spirits he is incapable of passing away without having realized the fruit of stream entry okay so there's this four stages of enlightenment stream entry once returner non-returner and arahant and i've taught other classes and explained how one would move into each of these four stages of enlightenment well the first stage of enlightenment is called the stream entry and the buddha is describing two types of people who might enter into stream entry and remember there's multiple criteria above and beyond what he's describing here he describes this confident stream enterer and one who's a teachings stream enterer and this confidence stream enterer that we were describing here in chapter 107 is one who has confidence in the teachings and understands the teachings in terms of having a certain confidence in them. And then there's this teaching stream enterer, which is one who has pondered the teachings, who has learned the teachings and understands them to a certain degree. In the stage of stream entry, you're not going to understand all the teachings 100% yet, but you understand a significant portion of them to have gotten to the first stage of enlightenment. It's not until you get to enlightenment as an arahant that you've attained final knowledge where you fully understand all the teachings and now you can effortlessly explain them if you needed to because you fully cultivated all the wisdom that you need in order to get to enlightenment and now you've attained final knowledge. But here in the first stage of enlightenment, you've pondered the teachings to a sufficient degree and accomplished a certain amount of wisdom. So now having attained that first stage of enlightenment, the Buddha described this as a teachings stream enter. Well, in order to get to stream entry, you're going to need confidence and you're going to need to have pondered the teachings to a certain degree. So this is what the Buddha is teaching is two different types of stream entry. But for you, I would encourage you to develop confidence and develop the wisdom of the teachings by reflecting on them or pondering them as the Buddha is describing here. Questions on these two chapters? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So we will move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 109. Chapter 109 is titled, Six Cases of Incapability by One Accomplished in View. Monks, there are these six cases of incapability. What six? One accomplished in view is incapable of depriving his mother of life, incapable of depriving his father of life, incapable of depriving an otter hunt of life, incapable of shedding the Tathagata's blood with a mind of hatred, 
incapable of creating a division in the community, incapable of acknowledging another teacher. These are the six cases of incapability. So one accomplished in view would be one of the criteria in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment because you need to get accomplished in establishing right view. And there's multiple aspects to accomplishing right view, namely practicing the Four Noble Truths, understanding and practicing the Four Noble Truths. But there's other aspects of accomplishing right view and getting established in right view as well. And these are six of those. And there's others besides this that you will study in volume five. Here, what the Buddha is saying in order to be accomplished in view is that you would be incapable of killing your mother. You'd be incapable of killing your father. You'd be incapable of killing an arahant or an enlightened being. You would be incapable of harming a Buddha or a Tathagata, shedding the blood and having a mind of hatred towards a Buddha. Because if your mind is accomplished in view, you would understand how important an enlightened being and thus also a Buddha, which is very rare in the world to have a Buddha, but enlightened beings as well, you would not be interested in harming any of these beings because you know how important it is for these beings to be in existence so that others can get to enlightenment. You would be incapable of creating division in the community because you would have confidence in the community and these people would have encouraged and supported you and helped you along the way in order to get to enlightenment. So if you're accomplished in view, you're not going to create difficulties in the community and gossiping about one person or another, creating this division in the community. And you would be incapable of acknowledging another teacher because if you've gotten to enlightenment with the help of a certain teacher, and of course your mind is enlightened, you know what that experience is like. But if you've gotten to that first stage of enlightenment, even that first stage, the Buddha is describing that you would be incapable of acknowledging another teacher because the difference between being off the path to enlightenment and being in this first stage of enlightenment is like night and day. And your discontentedness would have significantly diminished and your personal and professional life would have started to really blossom. There's more room to go by the time you get to enlightenment, but even getting into that first stage of enlightenment, there's such significant improvement to the condition of the mind in your life that you know it's this teacher that has helped you to be able to do that. And you would be incapable of acknowledging another person as your teacher for that teacher that has helped you get to the first stage of enlightenment. That's what the Buddha is describing here in one who is incapable of depriving mother of life, father, enlightened beings, a Buddha, creating division in the community or acknowledging another teacher because they're accomplished in view and they've progressed to a certain point in their practice that they would be incapable of doing these things as part of having trained the mind to get to that first stage of enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, it doesn't look like you guys are having any questions here either. So we'll move to the last chapter, which is titled, Final Knowledge is Achieved by Gradual Training. Monks, I do not say that final knowledge or wisdom is achieved all at once. On the contrary, final knowledge is achieved by gradual training, gradual practice, gradual progress. And how does there come to be gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. Here, one who has confidence in a teacher visits him. When he visits him, he pays respect to him. 
When he pays respect to him, he gives ear. One who gives ear hears the teachings. Having heard the teachings, he memorizes them. He examines the meaning of the teachings he has memorized. When he examines their meaning, he gains a reflective understanding of those teachings. When he has gained a reflective understanding of those teachings, enthusiasm springs up in him. When enthusiasm springs up, he applies his will. Having applied his will, he investigates. Having investigated, he strives. Purposely striving, he realizes with the ultimate truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. So here, some important things for you to learn is the Buddha says, monks, I do not say that final knowledge. What this is, is this is once somebody gets to enlightenment, they have attained final knowledge. They fully cultivated all the knowledge or wisdom that is needed to get to enlightenment. So the Buddha says, I do not say that getting to enlightenment is achieved all at once. This is a big myth in Buddhist communities. People think that the Buddha sat under a tree, he meditated, and instantly got to enlightenment. This is untrue. And you can see that here in his teachings, but you don't need to believe that. You can see and reflect on this for yourself, that anything that you've ever done in life, you've needed to experience gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. Whether it's learning how to walk, ride a bike, learn how to read and write and speak English, it's been gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. So getting to enlightenment is the same way. It's gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. So you can see that in the words of the Buddha right here for yourself. And now the Buddha says, well, how does one come to be uh, experiencing this gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress? Well, now he talks about having a teacher. This is another big myth in some Buddhist communities that people think that they can get to enlightenment by themselves. Only a Buddha can do that. So that's why the Buddha is explaining to you here that it's important to have a teacher. So one has confidence in a teacher and visits this teacher. This is how you get to enlightenment. This is how you get to wisdom that's going to lead to your enlightenment is have confidence in a teacher and visit that teacher regularly through classes, through personal guidance and other things like this. When you visit that teacher, pay respect to that person, whether it's a him or a her. Here, the Buddha is using the pronoun him, but you can substitute her in here as well because female teachers are available as well. Because if you're going to learn from a teacher, they're sharing teachings with you without any interest of anything in return. They're just there to help you. They might accept donations, but they shouldn't expect donations from you. So when you visit a teacher, they're only helping you out of the kindness of their heart. They're helping you with compassion and loving kindness. So pay respect to that person, and then you're going to have a better relationship where now there can be mutual respect between you and the teacher and the teacher with you. Now, having given respect, the Buddha says the person gives ear. What this means is you listen to the teachings. Having given ear, you hear the teachings. Because you visited this teacher, you've paid respect to them, and now you're listening, you start hearing the teachings. Once you're hearing the teachings, you start memorizing them. During the lifetime of the Buddha, you needed to memorize the teachings. Now you need to memorize the understanding of the teachings, the themes, the understanding of the teachings. Because we capture the teachings in books, in videos, and podcasts, and things like this, you don't need to memorize the teachings word for word, but you do need to memorize the understanding of the teachings. So having memorized the teachings, you start examining the teachings. 
This is the investigation and the examination, the pondering of the teachings now becomes after you've examined them, you start reflecting on your understanding of those teachings. That's that independent verification of the teachings to reflect on them. Now reflecting on the teachings, enthusiasm starts springing up in the mind because once you start realizing these teachings are the truth, you start getting this enthusiasm and this motivation springing up in the mind. And now with that enthusiasm, now there's a certain will that you have this intention to apply your will to further investigating and applying these teachings in practice. Then as you're fully investigating the teachings, you start to now strive and you're striving to practice the teachings. And as you're striving to practice the teachings, this is where you're transforming the mind and moving it closer and closer to the enlightened mental state because you're uprooting the pollutions of mind. There's plenty of people in the world who investigate the teachings and they intellectually understand them, but this doesn't lead to enlightenment. You might think about a researcher or a scholar or an academic. This is a person who's intellectually maybe understanding the teachings to a certain degree. But when you start reflecting on them to independently verify them and you move them into practice to actually transform your mind through training the mind, this is where now you see with penetrating wisdom because you now are applying the teachings, you're uprooting the pollution, your discontentedness is gradually diminishing, the mind is becoming closer and closer to enlightenment, so you can see with penetrating wisdom that these teachings are indeed leading to enlightenment. And this is the gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress, all starting with having confidence in a teacher and ensuring that you have a teacher to be able to help you progress on the path to enlightenment. Let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. All right, you guys aren't really having any questions today, so I guess you must be understanding to a certain degree what these teachings are that are being shared with you. I will go ahead and just end class by always thanking you, which I typically will do, is thank you for attending. Thank you for being dedicated and diligent to learning, whether you're learning live or you're learning in the replay of listening to this class, I really appreciate your dedication to applying effort and energy to understanding these teachings and applying them in your life because it's the best thing you could do for yourself, those close to you, and all of humanity. It's helping you and all those people around you because you're causing less harm in the world. Next week, we're going to be in the latter portion of this book. We're gonna be finishing up volume three. We're gonna be going from chapter 111 to 124. So we can just finish up the whole book next week. So if you'd like to read ahead of class, those are the chapters that you will read. And then the subsequent week or the following week, we will then move into volume four and start exploring that book. So it's chapters 111 through 124 next week. Then tomorrow in the group learning program, I'm gonna be in volume one, chapter 14. This is titled Cultivating Healthy Mental States, Loving Kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These are referred to as the Brahma Viharas. I'm gonna be teaching you guys these four healthy mental states, what they are, how to cultivate them, and what they remedy. Because this is where you see the Buddha is being described almost like a doctor. That you can see that there's certain symptoms in the mind, things like hatred, anger, ill will, 
indifference, worry, overactive mind, jealousy, envy. You can have anxiety or stress in the mind. And depending on what these different symptoms are, if you understand the symptoms and you understand the antidotes, which are the Brahma Viharas, you can apply them and execute them in the mind by bringing them up and arising them in the mind in order to eliminate these unwholesome qualities of the mind. And the way that you do that is by cultivating the wholesome qualities in the mind. That's what will eliminate the unwholesome qualities. So we're going to be discussing that in tomorrow's group learning program. It's the same time, same location. And you can also listen to that on the replay if you're missing the class for any reason. So thank you all for joining for today's class. We'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.